Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the AI advantage to prepare your mission for disaster. I don't know when a flood is going to happen or a wildfire, but I know it's going to happen. So we could use data and AI for those things in different ways. The jackpot inside the military data deluge. How do we take the millions and billions of data elements and make sense of it so it's presented to me so I can quickly make a decision. And the Army's looking everywhere for its next generation tech. It's not always about going with the bigs, although the bigs are great, right? Uh, the real innovation is the, the dude or dudette that's hungry at home, got a great idea, but they don't have a huge way to get across what they call the valley of death. It's Monday, May 2nd, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Energy Department's new Artificial Intelligence Council will oversee the agency's funding for AI and algorithm development. The director of Energy's AI and Technology Office, Pam Isom, tells FedScoop the council's first meeting's coming in June. It will include five leaders from across the department, including Isom. Fusing open-source intelligence with the Army's proprietary data is the next focus area for Army Cyber Command, according to its outgoing commander. Lieutenant General Steve Fogarty tells FedScoop the Army's finalizing doctrine for what it calls information advantage. Fogarty says the Army's considering structural changes to its cyber intelligence operation, too. You can read more about these headlines and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Voting's open now for the best bosses in federal IT. You can vote for the best bosses till May 20th. You can find a link to see the nominees and vote in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The latest update of the president's management agenda includes five life experiences the Office of Management and Budget believes the government can improve on. Pam Coleman from OMB told you about them on Thursday's Daily Scoop podcast. Suzette Kent is CEO of Kent Advisory Services. She's former federal chief information officer. Suzette, welcome. It's great to see you again. These five life experiences that OMB is focusing on, what do you take away from both the concept of those five particular experiences and the fact that this is the way that the PMA will approach, I would think more broadly, the way that citizens interact with government. Welcome. Well, thank you, Francis, and and it's good to to see you. Hey, um, I, I'm excited because this is one more step, right? The the priority um, services for the American public were identified, right? And this is a step in saying kind of what's first, where do we start? What are the ones that we're going to focus on? And what's important is it also coalesces agency actions. Um, and these are, obviously, they're, they're important, but there's um, a lot of importance in how we do this. And um, you heard me many times, you and I talked about the government behaving like an enterprise. Think about how many muscles it took for us to do that for cybersecurity, just to get agencies connected to the dashboard, right? To behave like an enterprise. What's the design? How do we execute it? How do we work on the same pace? Do we agree on the data? Um, I think many of your listeners would pause and reflect that that was really hard. Mm -hmm. And that was really hard in government. And, you know, I, I look at a project, um, you know, when I looked at this and I was really thinking about, okay, 
how do we get this done? How, you know, setting the priorities is an important thing, right? That's kind of paving the road, but how do we move down? How do we actually deliver some outcomes? I thought about working with labor and state and DHS and agriculture on the the, um, seasonal worker visas. Mm -hmm. And that's an example of a process that, that four agencies had to touch in different ways. They were funded differently. That thing had a different priority in all the agencies. And so that was just like, how do we start and how do we get people focused on it? How do we do a design that everybody agreed on? You know, those were some really tough sessions. And um, we had to, um, I I was part of them because you needed somebody to um, help coalesce, help bring it together, help drive and help resolve things when maybe agencies had different perspectives or they had different roadblocks. And, um, you know, then I'll, I'll turn to, okay, now we've got a design, right? We got through the idea phase and we got project managers on all the side and we meet and we're moving along. Um, there were also some just basic architectural things in how um, we manage data that from a technology perspective, we could have used, we, we could have envisioned a very efficient singular database that was real time, that was shared by all the agencies. Kind of makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Very practical. You can see that all over private sector and, and other places, but we couldn't do that because how data is held and how it's used and who holds it had very specific rules. So in cases, people had to make their own copies of things. And, you know, so, so that is a long kind of um, explanation of to do this, we have to do things differently. And that's what I look at with these efforts is how do we build an ongoing process? Cause these are the first five where we can do that prioritization, design, delivery, and funding in a united way and behave like an enterprise and then move into the actual, you know, deployment operation and ongoing sustainment and enhancement as an enterprise. And, you know, each of these had a collection of agencies and kind of a lead agency, but this is, this is big work. It's, it's important work. And um, we've got to create something where this isn't, um, this is the direction. So we need to invest in doing it the right way, which may mean some permanent structures or permanent processes that we discover are needed while this work is being done. All right. The five listed are approaching retirement, recovering from a disaster, navigating transition from active duty to civilian life, birth and early childhood for low-income mothers and children, and facing a financial shock, becoming newly eligible for critical support programs. So I'm just going to pick one of these, recovering from a disaster, Suzette. And the first step, and Pam and I talked about this a little bit uh, last week, one of the, the, the first step, it seems to me, is you have to know who everybody in the government is at every federal agency that may be expected to deliver a service that that citizen would need. 
that's been an amazingly difficult nut for people to crack, Suzette. Is that improving? Is that, do you have a sense that that, just that inventory is, is getting easier to understand? It's a good question. And I, you know, as I thought about these, I, I started with what, right? Yeah. And I'll, I'll use both um, recovering from a disaster, your example, but also birth and early childhood. What do, what do I want to do? There's all kinds of things that like go back to high impact. Recovering from a disaster, you know, someone from uh, Louisiana living in the Gulf South, I know a lot about that. Yes. How do, what am I recovering? Am I recovering people? That's food and, and a secure place to, you know, put your head down at night mm -hmm. and, and clean water um, and might be recovery services. You know, in, again, I use the South Hurricane, it was lumber. It was clean water. Is it businesses? Do I care that, that, you know, do I prioritize getting businesses up and going so that people can come back? Is it schools, right? Do people are in shelters or roads? Is it, is it, do I start with making the roads navigable? Okay. So that's a transportation. So the, the, I think that you, you actually start not just with who's involved, but what's the most important things that we need to do and what's the sequence? There's always going to be a lot of other things. There's going to be, um, you know, if it's during certain times that this happens to farmers, if it's during other times, X, Y, Z is disrupted. But you start with, what do we care about first? Do we care about, we care about life and security. We care about safety. So the, you know, we need the power lines up. We need the roads navigable and, and we need, you know, places that are not um, unsafe for humans to be in. Just that discussion is an important one. All right. And, so if we start with what, sorry to interrupt, if we yeah. start with what, and then you talked about how at the beginning of this conversation that becomes next, is, is that the next step? I guess I should ask. And if that is the next step, then how do you tackle the house, Suzette? Yeah, um, I think you start with what and some boundaries of what. And um, I, I think some of the things that uh, the, the administration's been doing well is setting some either expectations or some targets of how things might be measured. So what are we trying to achieve, right? Is And, and re recovering from a disaster, does, does that mean we're 30 days faster? Does that mean we decrease losses? Like how, how, how do I know I recovered? Right. How, or how do I know a region recovered? Right. That also means I'm going to have to work with the people and, and potentially the governors, you know, state and local tribal, whatever is in, you know, that particular area to define the what, and then, yeah, you do have to get to the how. Um, and the how may be, you know, technology driven substantially, but the technology supports the process. It supports the, the human outcomes, right? So you kind of have to have that idea to go in and figure out, you know, what's the best way to approach this. And then that becomes, you know, so some of those, just those first things we talked about, that's one set of decision makers and maybe more policy and agency leaders and interaction with 
the particular area you're serving and the agencies that have jurisdiction. But then when you get into the how, that's different people, Mm -hmm. right? That's your finance. That's your technology. That's your business operations um, folks. And then you get into sustainment and deployment. And that's, that's a whole kind of, you know, different processes and you have to be willing to tackle those um, all along. And I'm going to go back and give one example because you know, many people who are listening may have experienced this. During the pandemic, we uh, worked on retirement, how to digitize retirement, because federal employees had to physically come in and meet with somebody for some paperwork. They couldn't retire in a pandemic. Well, I guess that's the best way to make sure they don't quit. Just don't, just don't let them. I don't think that's the outcome we were after. No, I don't think that's probably what you were I don't think that's the outcome they were after, but it wasn't a safe environment. And so we found some ways to do that um, using different digital tools, but that's not consistent across agencies yet, something they're still working on. So, um, you know, and and again, approaching retirement, is it just the execution of the in-state process, you know, that it's digital and I start there? Or is it that, you know, I understand what my options are and I've, you know, what, what do I, what am I trying to achieve? What does it mean? And and so I'm, I'm starting with focus. That's a great thing. I'm glad these are out there. I'm glad agencies are coalescing around them. And I'm looking forward to um, not just what they're going to do, but uh, hopefully that, that, process that they go through. They're interrogating the process and leaving enough artifacts that it can be repeated. I love the idea that I'm almost out of time in a conversation with the former chief information officer of the United States, and we've talked almost nothing at all about technology. (laughs) Does does that mean, though, that the technology is not the heavy lift here, that, that we are in 2022, we're well aware enough of the technology that will connect this to that, that that's not what we have to figure out, that we have to conceptualize what we want to deliver and how we want to deliver it to the themes of these conversations. And then the technology, all we have to do is apply what we already know about technology. Am I thinking about it the right way, Suzette? Um, I mean, I, I'm oversimplifying okay. it, yeah. I understand. But I, you, you hit on one important thing. Most of the things that, that we need to accomplish, there are current technology solutions that fit that purpose, right? Absolutely. Where I think we have untested and new and emerging opportunity is places where we can use data and AI to anticipate some of these things. So like birth and early childhood for low-income mothers, you should not start the process after the child is born, right? You should know, hey, these are this, this, pro, this person is likely eligible, you know, for these things and have some of those things, you know, waiting again, approaching retirement, you know, you know, you see what's coming, recovering from a disaster. I don't know when a flood is going to happen or a wildfire, but I know it's going to happen. So we could use data and AI for those things in different ways to accelerate better processes, quicker recovery, and have exactly the kind of impact that they're hoping to get here. So technology is a, a partner and could be an accelerator, but it all depends on what you want to accomplish. 
It's always great to talk to you, my friend. Thanks for coming on. You too. You can read more about the customer experience journeys in the PMA in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Coming on Wednesday's program, a new leader on the way in the office of the Coast Guard C4IT CG6. The outgoing assistant commandant for C4IT and nominee for best boss in federal IT, Rear Admiral David Dermanalian, is on Wednesday's Daily Scoop podcast. You can catch that exit interview Wednesday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. Project Maven is moving. The National Geospatial Intelligence Agency will take over the program over the course of this fiscal year. Rear Admiral Donnell Barrett, U.S. Navy retired as former Deputy Chief Information Officer of the Navy, former Director of Current Operations at U.S. Cyber Command. She's author of Rock the Boat, Embrace Change, Encourage Innovation, and Be a Successful Leader. Donnell, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Give me a refresher. What is Project Maven and what's its significance in kind of the pantheon of artificial intelligence projects in DOD? Welcome. So Project Maven was really um, born out of the uh, uh, Syria-Western Iraq uh, initial conflict and problem set where they had a lot of full motion video that was being captured by unmanned vehicles. Um, and they needed to make sense of that. And so, you know, how to get those objects uh, that they were seeing on that full motion video classified by those operators who were operating the um, um, unmanned vehicles to, to automatically tag something. So, for example, if it was a truck, it could automatically tag a truck and then that would generate tracks and um, data, metadata on it and objects that could then be classified as hostile or friendly and used for targeting purposes. And so um, that's sort of what the genesis was. And since then, of course, it's... Um, uh, had a uh, focus on AI and ML, and um, NGA, the National Geospatial Agency, is actually taking over Project MAVEN um, under the DOD's Artificial Intelligence Accelerator Program starting in October of this year, the new fiscal year, fiscal year 2023. That was directed in President Biden's budget, um, and uh, Congress still needs to appropriate the money, but that's the plan. And there will be some elements of MAVEN that do stay with the uh, USDI and the, uh, the intelligence side on the, other, on the other side. But remember that NGA NGA is not just an intelligence agency. They're like NSA, the National Security Agency. They're also a uh, 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 combat support agency. So they have roles in support of the COCOMs as well that are directly operational. So when it moves over to NGA, they'll be responsible for things like, you know, data labeling and AI algorithms and testing, evaluation, you know, providing a platform for people to work off of, you know, working with the joint um, artificial intelligence um, uh, center in the Pentagon on standards and governance and interfaces and things like that. But they'll have an operational control of MAVEN, which will be um, important. And what's really important, Francis, to understand about this is why NGA? People are like, why NGA? Why NGA? Yeah. When you think about it, NGA has a huge cadre of people who've been at the business of doing intelligence analysis of and collection of imagery and exploiting imagery for years. I mean, they've been around for at least 25 years as NGA. And before that, they were um, NEMA and the Defense Mapping Agency and the National Photographic Interpretation Center. So they've been at this for even longer than 25 years. So they know the earth. They know how to take imagery and, and get it to from imagery to targeting and, and over the horizon targeting information for weapons. So, you know, their plan is to apply the, ML, the AI ML to what they call computer vision. 
um, which is is taking it's a form of AI where, uh, for example, like on your cell phone, um, you have pictures of, of you want to search for a picture of your your dog, right? So you search for a dog, and all and a couple pictures will come up of your dog. But what they want to do is apply AI to that to say, okay, at the pixel level, here's what this means to say it's a dog, right? And it would classify as dog, and then your phone could then look for pixels that are similar, and also say, well, these are dogs too. So that's kind of what they're looking at within their computer vision concept. And they want to combine that with the AIML and the low cost of low Earth orbit satellites, uh, which have really sophisticated cameras on them now and can get images quickly, more quickly back and forth. The resolution is really amazing. So that's kind of what they're looking at doing. They combine that with their staff of people who've been doing this for years and years to help them build those algorithms um, to understand the sense of the data. Give me a little bit more of a sense of what that means, what that capability that you just described means for a warfighter in theater. Yeah, so what that means is right now, there's still a lot of manual um, crunching of data, looking at data. Um, sometimes it's very centralized too in the intelligence community where you know it'll go all the way back, reach back to somewhere else for someone to analyze and do something with, and then go back to the front. All that waste time. And you know, in the time of hypersonic missiles and other things, I mean, time is the thing we don't have anymore, the luxury of. I mean, when we owned the battle space um, over the air in Iraq or Syria or some of those places, uh, the problem set was a little bit more, um, it's still challenging, but you had time. Um, with the more capable adversaries that we have now, we're not going to have that luxury of time. And so we have to be able to make sense of data at the tactical edge. Um, and this will help us do that. And if we can build these algorithms to do that um, using the AI, you know, remember our adversaries, uh, you know, they have the access to the same technology, Francis. And so, you know, they're building out huge infrastructure, particularly China with their building digital China. Um, it's also known as just plain old digital China. Um, but, you know, some of the stuff they're doing, I mean, they're putting two Point seven trillion dollars over the next five years into building their digital infrastructure. I mean, you know, they're not playing around. And so we have to be prepared to face that kind of that kind of capable adversary. It's not going to be Iraq and Syria in the future. It's going to be more uh, near uh, peer competitors who have a lot of interest in it and who've been at this. I mean, China's been at their digital strategy for 20 years now. This is not new. They got a long view. We got to be really concerned about that. NGA is at an interesting point in its evolution, too, because for a lot of the things that NGA did throughout its history, and you did a, a great job of laying that history out a moment ago, Danelle, but a lot of the things that NGA has done are on my phone now, and they're not services that yeah. are necessary from uh, a, an intelligence agency in the United States government. So they've been kind of searching is not the right word, but um, Vice Admiral Sharp, the outgoing commander of NGA, ha has been very direct in saying we have to rethink what NGA is and what NGA does for the future. Um, is this part of that? Is this, in your view, does this make sense as part of the logical evolution of NGA? Yeah, absolutely. And I think because, too, you know, the, the military's, uh, DOD's AI, MLF, it's not going to be all resident in one organization. It's going to be spread out through various organizations, NGA, the services, the Jake, you know, um, uh, the research organizations like DARPA. And, you know, they have 
to be coalesced and work together and make sure we're not working at cross purposes. And that's what the Jake will help with, right? That kind of deconfliction. But you don't want to stifle that innovation um, where you have pockets of excellence. And Admiral Sharp's vision really is, is exquisite because when you think about it, he's recognized he has the talent who understands the problem set of looking, particularly imagery, but data and how, how to make sense of data, which is what we need from a warfighting perspective. You know, how do we take the millions and billions of data elements and make sense of it so it's presented to me so I can quickly make a decision? And, you know, along those lines, he's done this thing, Admiral Sharp's done this thing called his the moonshot. You know, it's the anchor of his ideas in this technology strategy he has, right? And and they've actually gone to the extent of, I'm not sure you're aware of this, but in St. Louis, 25% of the NGA mission is done out of St. Louis. And it's really become a tech center for imagery and the kinds of technologies that we've been talking about this morning. And academia is engaged there. And they do all sorts of experimentation. They actually have something called the Moonshot Labs, which is an unclassified partnership with industry for testing sort of incubators and startups for these kind of technologies that'll help them get to the the project maven end state that they're talking about, which is really how to get the data and generate effects and tracks in JADC2. You know what I mean? When you think about JADC2, that's all about the data. And this is going to help them get the data, make sense of that data and get it in there so you can actually, uh, you know, take uh, operational, have operational effects based on it make decisions. I, I was there a couple of years ago when I was with the television show for a big groundbreaking for that center that you're talking about. And it's it really just is incredible the way that that has jump-started that organization and the way that it's jump-started that city. I mean, that that there's a lot of the operations of that city, a lot of the things that are going on in that city that are not limited to what's going on around NGA but what's going around the right. going on around the technology community and the intelligence community including as you referenced academia and and other parts of it um, in in that city it's really a, a amazing for St. Louis and amazing for uh, military intelligence what's this look like two three five years in the future Danelle well, I think some of it's going to be dependent upon making sure we have the infrastructure in place to, and this, the data standards or at least um, uh, structure for a data architecture to do something with it. So you need to make sure that the data and the, what we call the transport, how you move the data around, are in place. I mean, you can have all the great plans on paper. You can have all the great conceptual ideas and everybody can nod their head and say, yeah, 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 that's what we need to do. But if you don't invest in the plumbing, um, you know, you can have the most beautiful, exquisite toilet, right? And then if your plumbing's terrible, you've still got a problem, right? And so they've got to fix the plumbing, which is the transport layer and the data architecture, sort of the data standards layer. Um, but, you know, those and those are tough things because nobody wants to set standards for data because it's, uh, it's hard to enforce and well, you hear the same stories all along. But but they have to because the the alternative, what I jokingly refer to as the data jackassery we have now, um, won't get us to the end state of what we need for operational excellence in AI um, in ML in our data infrastructure. So so, again, I think it, it's going to be dependent upon making sure that the 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 plumbing's in place, if you will, and that these these efforts can be moved quickly from experimentation into capability. I mean, when you look at, for example, let me just tell you, when you look at what's just happened in um, uh, 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 Ukraine, I mean, the Ukrainians basically um, went from zero to, to 1,000 in a month, right? I mean, they went from having not, not having the ability to um, uh, target and and 
take out tanks and stuff to now, I mean, just by using their unmanned vehicles and intelligence and Starlink satellites, they cobble together, plus their cell phones, they cobble together essentially a Jad C2 in like 45 days, right? And, um, you know, it's, it's using anti-tank weapons and stuff that they had gotten. And, they, and we have to be able to move fast like that. And, and our systems uh, for uh, acquisition and testing and all that don't really allow for that now. But we've got to think about how can we move fast like that so we can operate, almost, you know, at the speed that Ukraine did in the last month. U- Ukrainians used use that technology. Ukrainians used that technology to sink two ships over the weekend, we learned. It's incredible. Oh, I'm, amazing. That's my point is, you know, it, it, and they used what they had, right? They, and a, the Starlink piece was added new, but they already had cell phones. They already had anti-tank weapons. They already had, you know, uh, uh, the drones, the, the uh, uh, killer drones that, and stuff like that. They had some of those already. So they, they used about 75% what they had. They got 25% new stuff, but they were off to the races. And, you know, were their TTPs perfect, their techniques techniques and procedures? Probably not the first go-around, but like you said, if they just sank two warships over the weekend, they're doing something right and fast. Danelle Barrett, thank you very much as always. Really appreciate it. Okay, thanks, Francis. Appreciate being on. You can read more about NGA taking over Project Maven in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Army's about seven years into its cloud journey now. One of the reasons behind that push is the Army's contribution to multi-domain operations and JADC2. Colton O'Malley is Deputy Commander of the Army Command and Control Support Agency. He tells my FedScoop colleague Billy Mitchell the benefits of his services move to the cloud are hard to quantify because there have been so many. The biggest benefit is you have the disparity of service offerings that meet the individual niche needs of each individual customer. So when you look at the Army, you've got all these varying needs from the tactical soldier to the operational soldier to the headquarters. And so each one of them is gonna need a different level of service delivery. And so that's when you start to leverage the multi-cloud because you start to look at Amazon Web Services and the different services that they provide. Then you look at Microsoft and the different services that they provide. And you know, the Army is predominantly a Microsoft enabled environment. And so it's sometimes it's easier to go to the native Azure, but there's a lot of different benefits that you get from AWS, you know, like their partnership with VMware that enables us to take on-premise data centers that are primarily ran on VMware vSphere and marry it directly to the cloud. And then that way you literally just pipe straight into the cloud. So that's a huge benefit you get with AWS. I know that they're they're obviously expanding their partnerships, but um, uh, VMware is anyways. Uh, but the multi-cloud gives you multiple options. It gives you the different services they provide and allows you to sort of have a, a more tailored menu rather than a one-size-fits-all. And on the security side, how do you see public sector, public sector agencies or your own taking more innovative approaches to cybersecurity and data protection in 2022? I think right now we're trying to mature how we do what they call the continuous ATO or some folks are calling it continuous risk management framework. Uh, That's a huge boon because what we're doing is we're taking the way we're developing applications. One, we're immediately trying to make it cloud native, right? And so that makes it much faster, makes it more secure because you have newer technologies that have more people supporting them. Uh, But at the same time, you're also taking security and you're pushing it to the left. And so by pushing security to the left, what you're enabling is uh, quicker response times, 
faster detection of problems, and then quicker remediation of those problems as well. Uh, you know, and the whole intent is to stop uh, an adversary, whether it's a kid in mom's basement or you know, uh, one of Vladimir Putin's troops trying to get into our software. So obviously a big piece of all of this is talent, and I'd love to ask you, how do you see digital workforce enablement helping agencies improve how they attract and retain skilled employees? I think it's right now we're sort of in the experimentation phase. So uh, DHS has definitely been on the forefront of that. They've done some really great things with how they're hiring uh, technologists into the actual federal government, you know, increasing salaries, making it more competitive, uh, trying to match industry as best they can, uh, taking away the, the, the limiting factor of, well, you're going to be a general schedule this and saying, okay, like we need you to do this and here's the salary range that we can try to get as close to meeting uh, industry partners as possible. And then uh, the, the Department of the Army is making big changes there as well. They completely refactored their IT uh, career program now to be more cyber-centric, to be more data-centric, and trying to marry those two together and sort of you know, re-message to the workforce like, hey, you're no longer just an IT technologist. Like you are in the cybersphere now, and here's all the different technologies that are implicit behind that. Uh, but then they're also offering really huge training programs behind that, because you know upskilling our workforce is something that is sort of implicit. We have to do. We can't just hire people and say it's it's your your job to get better, right? So uh, you know that's how we're moving forward and trying to you know make things better in the 2022. So Colton, as we close out, agencies had to move rapidly to acquire novel IT solutions during the pandemic over the last two years. How do you see those efforts impacting longer-term acquisition reforms moving forward? So when you look at how the DOD writ large, specifically the Army in my case, uh, adopted what we're calling Army 365, which is really the Office 365 suite, right? It was very iterative. There was no roadmap. There was no functional requirements document. There was no thousand uh, different uh, vendors coming to us and trying to sell something on industry day. It was, we've got a need. Everybody is now dispersed. COVID-19 is here and it's here to stay. How do we fix this? And so I think what that did is that created a really awesome precedent to help us say, hey, look, like that needs not just COVID anymore, right? That need is, you know, what Russia is doing in the Ukraine, what China is doing over in the, in the South Pacific, you know, all this pressure that's being put on Taiwan and all these other areas. It's, it's helping us to make a precedent for Congress, the federal acquisition regulation and the DOD federal acquisition regulations. They move slow, help us move it faster. And they've actually been very great teammates in that perspective. They've done a lot of things to help us enable using other transaction authorities, um, and, and really get closer to the talent, right? Because it's not always about going with the bigs, although the bigs are great, right? Uh, the real innovation is the, the dude or dudette that's hungry at home, got a great idea, but they don't have a huge way to get across what they call the valley of death, right? And so that's what this is helping us, uh, you, you know, this precedent has helped us do is, you know, decrease that valley of death and get the tech talent um, and, and these new capabilities closer to the warfighter uh, in a much shorter time frame. 
uh, so it's just that's huge for us. Colton O'Malley, Deputy Commander of the Army Command and Control Support Agency, with my FedScoop colleague Billy Mitchell. You can find a link to watch the video of that entire conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the show, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the Daily Scoop podcast. This program is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns tomorrow afternoon. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.